How are we doing? Good, 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 good. Well, um, I am excited this morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those. John chapter 17. Uh, we'll start in verse 6. And as I said last week, I'll say it again this week. Man, it's good to see you. So good to have people back in this place. Um, last week, it was great to have you back. And just, to, man, just again, we're family. And when family goes a while without being together, it's just difficult. It's tough. And so uh, we were created for a relationship. Uh, church was created to be a fellowship, a community. And so when that community goes absent for a while and the fellowship goes absent for a while, it gets very very difficult. And so um, we're in our new series, and we'll be in our new series for the next few weeks. Uh, we're just looking deeper into how it is that Jesus prayed. I mean, Jesus is about to enter a very difficult time in his life as the cross is on the forefront. And so he, what he does is he, as he often would, would just step aside for a moment and begin to pray. And, and in this instance, he's praying with his disciples. And the prayers that he is praying here in this moment is, is not just some surface level, uh, easy type prayer, but it's a very deep, agonizing type prayer that Jesus enters into as he uh, communes with his father, as he talks with his father. And, and, and as we look at it, I just believe that there's so much that we can learn from the heart of Jesus. There's so much that we can take from this prayer and see as he pours out his heart uh, to his father, as he begins to pray for his men who are his disciples, following him, who have given up everything, knowing what's coming for them, knowing what's about to happen in their life. As he goes away, he begins to pray and ask God to do some things in their life. So I want to encourage you this morning just to watch as Jesus is preparing for this journey to the cross, as he prays for his current and future disciples, as his current disciples are and his future disciples to come, as they will remain on earth as he returns to the Father. Just look at, look at his heart in this prayer. And so in John 17, we find this very detailed prayer before his crucifixion. And he begins by praying for himself. That's what we looked at last week. And now he's going to turn his attention to his followers, his immediate disciples here with him. And so last week we talked a little, about, a little bit back in verse 4 what it meant of the work that Jesus has accomplished. Because Jesus says that. Look with me again real quick. John 17, 4 before we jump into 6. He says, this is Jesus talking to God. He says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus makes this bold statement in this prayer that, that he's accomplished, that he's done something that God has asked him to do. And the thing that blows my mind is that he hasn't been to the cross yet. And I know for us as believers and as the church, we look back and we can see in the big thing in Jesus' life, the big thing that he accomplishes is what? Is rescuing, redeeming fallen man. That he goes to the cross and he saves us from our sin. But Jesus hasn't got there yet. And so what does this mean? What is he saying? What is he talking about here? Because what we know is this, is that Jesus dedicated his life for what? The glory of his Father. How? Through making disciples, making God known in their life. And so Jesus proclaimed and he lived intentionally with his followers, his disciples. And he did it in such a way that the Father would be proclaimed and made known in their life. That's the great work that Jesus has accomplished. That's what Jesus had done up to this point. He made disciples. And so now Jesus is going to spend the energy and, and uh, time in this prayer focusing on his very work, this very work that he poured into over those three years. And we're going to see him just cry out to the Father on their behalf. So I'm going to ask you this morning, join me as we pray, and then we'll jump into where we'll be here shortly. Father, we love you. Jesus, we need you. God, we ask that you speak in this place this morning. Father, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us. Father, give us ears to hear what you have to say. 
Oh God, that we would look at this prayer and that we would uh, understand deeper who you are, your love for your people. God, your dedication of living out for the glory of God. God, may we draw from that this morning in this place. And Father, I want to pray as I often do, God, for those in this room that maybe don't know you as Savior. Lord, that you, would, that you would rescue and redeem, God, that you would just point out and that you would draw them to you. And Father, God, maybe for the heart in here that's, that's tangled in sin, God, that you would set them free. God, that you would break those chains. God, the very prayer that you're going to pray this morning for your immediate disciples, Father, may it ring true for us even here today, Lord, as we look at this battle of, of evil and good, dark and light, Father, may May there be victory this morning in this place. May you work in a mighty, mighty way. And Father God, all of this is for your glory, for your honor, God, for your great name. God, may people grow all the deeper in relationship with you as a result of your proclaimed word. Father, we need you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so when someone tells me that they're praying for me, man, it just, it just gives me this confidence and this boldness. Uh, like for me, every Sunday morning, between about 8 and 8.30, I get a text from a certain family member that doesn't go here, that just says, man, praying for you, we love you, we know that God's going to use you, man, you just stick to the word, you tell them about Jesus. It's just a very bold prayer that, that we're praying and that we know that God's going to use you this morning to proclaim his gospel, to proclaim his great name, and I just, I, I love that. And when people say that they pray for me, it just, it just gives me that confidence and that boldness. I mean, think about it for just a second. Out of all the things that you could be doing, out of all the things that you can do for someone, or all the things that you could just even do in your day-to-day doing and being and, and going along, out of all the things that you can do, to pause for a moment on behalf of someone else in the ear of God. I mean, think about that for a second. To, to pray for someone, to, to, to step away from whatever it is, the, the humility in that, the intention in that, to pray on behalf of someone else, and to know that there's a God that hears that, that there's a God that welcomes that, that there's a God that wants you to come boldly before His throne is what the Scripture teaches, that, that He's invited us in, that, he, that we have His ear, that we have His attention, and to think that He listens and hears and He knows And he's going to move on his behalf for his glory and for our good. Just knowing that someone's praying for you, knowing that someone's going to go on your behalf and ask God to move and do in your life. Ian Bounds says it like this, and I just love this quote. Ian Bounds is just this, this saint of a man who has passed and is with the Lord, but, but man, just, just had a heart for prayer. And this, this is what he says. Listen to what Ian Bounds says. He says, talking to men for God is a great thing. So sharing the gospel, telling man about God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. Talking to God for men is greater still. Praying on behalf of someone else to God, he says, is greater still. He will never talk well and with real success to men for God who has not learned well how to talk to God for men. So what Ian Bounds is saying is simply this, is that, man, it's a great privilege and honor and a great work for the believer to go to God on behalf of someone else. I mean, there's a great responsibility for us as believers to be doing that. And so what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to do that for his disciples, his immediate 12. Next week, we'll look at how he prays for us here. But I believe it's also something that we can look at knowing that he's going to pray for his disciples in that moment this way. And he would pray the same way for us. I mean, so think about that for a moment. 
Jesus himself praying for his disciples. Can you imagine the boldness in that? I mean, all the things that they've seen him do, all the things that he's accomplished, and now they're there with him. And in that moment, he says, guys, I'm going to pray. And he prays and he prays for them. I mean, can you imagine what that would do to you? I mean, this family member, these family members that text me on a Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, it's like clockwork. To imagine for a moment that this is Jesus doing that for you. And so we're going to see him transition his prayer to that focus of his disciples. Talking to God for his men, his guys, his followers that have given up everything to come after him. That's what he's going to do. And so the work of Jesus was not only dying on the cross for the sins of the world to reconcile us to the Father, but Jesus' disciples, they're also a tangible expression of the completion of his work. Of the completion of his work. And so Jesus begins by recapping what's already taken place. And then look at what he says here in 17.6. Because verse 6 is going to sum up all of Jesus' ministry, including the cross that's just hours away. Look at, look at what he says. He says, I have manifested, manifested just means made known, I have made known your name to the people whom you've gave me out of the world. Jesus is just saying, God, I've pointed them to you. I've made you known before them. He's, these disciples, these men that he spent three years pouring into, showing them who the Father was, showing them what, who the Father was like, how to act, how to react, what to do, how to be. I've made known your name to these people. These men that you've given me, I've made you known, I've proclaimed you. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So what Jesus is saying here is that it's God who gave these men who believed. It was God who gave Jesus these 12. And what we know, what we see through the scriptures, is that it's God who awakens in the heart of lost man. Their great need for him. And he does it by way of the Holy Spirit. He knows and he is aware of those who will come to Jesus and be saved. God knows. He's aware. And that's what Jesus is just saying. God, it's you that give them to me. It's you that, that placed them in me. In verse 7, he says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So, so Jesus is just in this prayer. I mean, can you imagine them hearing this? Man, as your heart's bowed before the throne and Jesus is praying this, everything that you've given me is from you. I mean, how do they know that? See, Jesus constantly did what? Talked about the Father. He constantly modeled for them what it looked like to live for, for God, to, to bring glory and honor to God. He, he modeled that and he showed that. I mean, he would pray and he would ask the Father for certain things at certain times, did he not? I mean, think about it for a second, all the different miracles that he performed. I mean, just a few right off the top of my head, raising the dead to life. Lazarus there. He, he prayed for God for his glory. In the feeding of the 5,000, what did he do? Same thing. Broke the bread and gave thanks to it. Asking God to move in that moment. I mean, they've got to see this lived out before them. And so Jesus is just reminding them in that little statement, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. It's been you, God, behind the scenes doing all of this. Verse 8, he goes on and says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So what we see here is this portrayal of Jesus is very reminiscent of the description of the prophet like Moses over in Deuteronomy 18, 18, where it says this, I will raise up for them a prophet 
like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So what Jesus is doing here is just simply affirming the genuine saving faith of his disciples. He's pointing to and he's showing. They, they heard and they believed. And they come to know and they come to act upon the truth that they've heard. They're living it out. And so now what we're going to see is Jesus kind of transition from that to the actual prayer for them. What he's going to ask God to do in their life. What he's going to ask God to accomplish. How he's going to ask God to be. Verse 9, he says this. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So this focused prayer, this time of intentional prayers for Jesus' disciples, his followers here in this moment, not the world, not yet, no, I'm praying for my guys. Verse 10 says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So what we see here and what Jesus is simply saying is this, is that because of those disciples, Jesus gets glory. And if Jesus gets glory, who else gets glory? God. Well, because Jesus' heart and his life was dedicated, what? To the glory of God, to making God known, to making God famous, to making God put in his rightful place. All glory and honor goes to God, and that's what the disciples do. They bring glory to Jesus, and in return, it brings glory to God. And so as we talked last week, glory, glory is just glorifying Jesus, and God, it means to acknowledge his greatness and give him the honor due his name. How? By praising and worshiping. And what Jesus is saying in his prayer is like, God, that's what they're going to do. That's what they've been doing. As a result of all of this, that's what's going to take place. So how do they do that? Church, how can we bring glory to God? How can we make much of Jesus? How can we point people to him? How can we worship and praise him? How Believing and loving him is the way we do that. We believe in what he says and then we love him and we gladly follow him out in obedience. We do what he tells us to do, what he's outlined in, in his word as he's proclaimed and he's given us an outline and a, and a way to live and a way to be and a way to act and a way to do, a standard of holiness. And so as we do that and as we love and pursue Jesus, he gets glory and honor out of it. Another way that we bring glory and honor to him is by making him known. So when he does stuff in our life, we tell people about it. We brag on him, you know? I mean, I do it all the time with everybody else in my life. Why can't I do it with Jesus? That's one way that we bring him glory and honor. We bring him praise. is by telling people what he's done in, in your life. How he's come through. In the good or the bad. All for his glory and for his honor. And, and like I said earlier, another way that we bring him glory is by just doing what he says. I mean, if we would ever get to that place where we'd understand how astronomical it is that we just obey him. What that does in this world for the believer that just obeys the simple commands of Jesus. What it does for bringing him glory and honor. I mean, that's an act of worship. Is that we just obey and do what he's called us and asked us to do. The glory and honor that will be due him as a result of that. So Jesus here praying for his disciples, the twelve, that they would bring him and, and in return, bring God glory that is due them. That's what he's praying for and asking here. And he goes on in verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So kind of a crazy little thing to pray because Jesus obviously is in the world because he's before his disciples praying. He's before his disciples talking to God. But, but the thing that I find so interesting is this, is that Jesus here is so sure of his death and his departure back to the Father that he treats it like it's already an accomplished fact. 
God, it won't be much longer. Dad, I'm, I'm, I'll be right there. I promise. It's, it's, it's coming. I know it. We, we've talked about this in the past. We've, I've seen this in eternity. I, I, I know it. And so Jesus here in this moment seems to be anticipating the state of affairs that's, that's soon to happen after his ascension. When the disciples what are they're, they're carrying on his earthly ministry, when they're left alone. See, when we see this, this term world here, when we, when we read it and he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. What is he talking about? World here can refer to those who oppose Jesus. Those with a different mindset, those with a different thought, those that are anti-God, those that are, no matter how uh, abrasive it may be or how uh, uh, nice and neat it may be, but those that are anti, those who oppose God in his way. And so Jesus knows that he will no longer dialogue with those who oppose him. That he will no longer be going back and forth with the Pharisees. That, that from this point forward, Jesus' answer to his oppression is very minimal and straightforward. And he speaks very plainly and he doesn't speak a lot. It's what we see in Isaiah 53 where he will go to his death in the same way as the suffering servant and what not open his mouth. He'll just take it. He won't argue. He won't fight. He knows that his time has come and he's about to accomplish the very thing that he was set out to accomplish. And it was being that sacrifice for mankind. Being that payment for our sin. He knows that. And so he's very silent. He's praying for his disciples. He continues on in 11. He says, Holy Father, he says, keep them in your name which you have given me. And so God has given his authority to Jesus. And that fits in very much with the I am statements that's used throughout the Gospel of John. He's just affirming that all the more. He goes on and says that they may be one even as we are one. And think about that for a second. Jesus is praying for his disciples. For what? They'd be unified. How? Like the Trinity is unified. How the Trinity is one between the Father and the Son. I mean, do you not see that throughout the Scriptures? The unity of Jesus and his Father? Jesus and God, the unity. Jesus does nothing without being prompted by God to do something. Jesus does nothing outside of the realm of, of God's leading and direction. I mean, you even see it when Jesus is tempted. What? He doesn't circumvent God to get what he needs to do to get even though he could do it. He submits gladly to the leading of the Father, and he is dependent fully upon God to lead and move, regardless of the circumstance or situation. And so what Jesus is doing here, and I find so just big for us as a church, we need, we need to know this as a, as a body, as a people, is that Jesus prays that believers will be unified like that of the Trinity. I mean, let me think about that for a moment. Perfect unity. Perfect unity. They're always in oneness, are they not? I, I guess as I look at this and I read this and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, what's going on? What's really happening here? What, what is Jesus doing? Because Jesus just said that he's about to go away. He just said that his time is up, that the cross is near. And in his mind and in his heart, it's, it's happening. It's, it, it's, he's in the moment. And what happens is Jesus is about to go away. Then what happens? The disciples are left here, Right? Think of it like this. I can remember in, uh, I can see it lived out in my life right now in my boys, but I can think about it with me and my sister. Mom and dad are in the room. What happens with Scott and Amanda? Sweet little angels. I love you, sis. You're the greatest. But the moment they step out of the door, what happens? Yeah. Fight like cat and dogs. Unif unified on nothing. Why? Because big brother's always right. Not little sister. She don't know nothing. And what she do? She hits me. So what do I do? I got to retaliate. 
and your sister is not a girl, okay? Men never hit women. Boys don't hit girls. Your sister's not a girl. I'm just joking. I'm digress. But, but there's, there's no unity there. When mom and dad step up. And so what Jesus is praying is that whenever he leaves, whenever he goes, that that won't be the case. That that won't take place. That that won't happen. He knows that he's about to be crucified and he will no longer be with them. And what's going to happen? The world's going to come after him. After them, Satan's going to want to destroy and tear down and break apart. And he prays that there be unity amongst his disciples, just as unity that there is with, with the Trinity. So Jesus is about to be crucified and he's not going to be with them. In the New Testament, when you look at the New Testament, what you see is community. What you see is oneness and togetherness. I mean, in the New Testament, knows nothing of isolated believers, maverick loners. Wherever you find saints, you find them, what, in a fellowship. And a fellowship, you have to have uh, uh, more than one. And so we were created for relationship. We were created for community. We were created for fellowship. And what that points to, and I believe even what Jesus is praying here that we would see, is that, is that we as God's people, we need each other. We need each other. It's funny, I've had conversation this week with, with a good friend, and, and uh, just, it just solidifies, I guess, all the more, just some of the stuff on my heart. But one of my fears through this season that we're in with this pandemic is this thought of online church. Now hear me, we've got an amazing team that puts together some amazing stuff that we can get out there. And I think the cool thing about this season is that the gospel has gotten out like it has never gotten out probably. The shares and the things that have been made known, uh, the things that have been put out and broadcast on the internet, on, on Facebook, on social media platforms, uh, on websites, I think have been phenomenal. And I thank God so much for the team that he's put together for, for us to be able to do that. And, and any way that we can get the message of the gospel out, we want to do that. But the thing that scares me to death is that this may become the new norm for people. And hear me, hear me. And this is not a pressure thing. Like, like online, look at me. This is not a pressure thing. This is not a, hey, you need to get your tail back here. We want you to be safe. We want you to be cautious. There's no guilting at all here. We, we get that and we know that we're in uncertain times. But, but what I want to press us on, church, what I want to press us on is simply this, is that we are very, very careful not to become so comfortable with a, a screen that we forget the fellowship that we were created for, that we forget the community that we were designed to be in. And it becomes so easy just to disconnect and sit behind the screen and listen to a guy uh, preach the word and then go away unchanged and have no accountability, no fellowship, no nothing as it pertains relationally to following Jesus. Church, we weren't created for that. We were created for community. We were created for fellowship. We need accountability. We need, we need those things in our life. We need encouragement. We need uh, be, to be uplifted. We need to be prayed for. We need to be uh, uh, challenged from time to time. And it's so easy to sit behind a screen and push power if it becomes too in your face or if it becomes too aggressive or if it becomes too difficult. And so to just disconnect what scares me is as We've made it so easy, and thank God that we have. And I know it seems like I'm talking in a circle here, but man, we were created for the local body to be connected, to be sub submerged into, to do life with others, to, to share and to fellowship. And so I guess it's just when I see this and when I think about this, man, it's so easy to sit back and become 
ununified or disunified behind a screen and not to rally around one another and remember that those struggles and those battles and those fights and those things that we've been through for God shaping and molding us helps us all the more and we need each other. Need each other. And so Jesus goes on in his prayer and he says this. He says, while I was with them in verse 12, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. So what Jesus is saying here is that he's protected them, that he's kept them safe from the world. As he says over in John 6, you can kind of see him talk about that. So I believe something that we need to talk about for just a moment is this thought of eternal security. I believe it brings up this thought here as I read, read this and as I thought about it and as I prayed about this, this thought of eternal security. And so it's a doctrine that we believe here at New Life is that of eternal security of a believer. And, and yes, I want to make sure you heard how I said it because I said it right there as I mentioned it. That we believe in the eternal security of a believer. Of someone who has been born again. Of someone who has crossed from death into life. And so we believe in a fact if you were saved, we believe that God is big enough and great enough and strong enough and mighty enough to keep you in your salvation. If he can save you, he can keep you. And so we believe that he saves, and it's not us, it's not a work that we do, it's not a thing that we do, that, it's, uh, that he is glorious enough to do that, that he can surely keep you in that. But here's where the tension lies. As with many things in Scripture, there's great tension. And so I don't believe that everyone who says that they are saved are truly saved. I just don't believe that. And, and I'll talk about that here in just a moment. My fear is that as a pastor, just as a follower of Jesus, just as the responsibility and expectation of a holy life lived that Christ puts upon me, just as a follower, not as a pastor, just as a follower of Jesus, my fear is of the amount of people who know about Jesus but don't truly know Jesus. Who've never had that life transformation. They know a bunch of facts and know a bunch of stuff and they even know some scriptures and know how to, to respond uh, in a moment. They can do certain things, but has there ever been that life transformation? One of the ways that we say it is this, is that they got the fire insurance policy. In church, I want to say this this morning, the, this, I guess the best way I can, but hear me. Salvation is not about not going to hell. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but salvation is not about not going to hell. No, salvation is about being made right in Christ. Salvation is about having your sins forgiven. Salvation is about relationship with Jesus. Hell, I don't even care about hell. I need Jesus because I'm broken. I'm, I've got issues. I've got sin. I'm plagued with it. I'm fallen. And I need to be put back together. And the only way that that can happen is Jesus. Not just a, a short circumvent Jesus and get me to heaven. No, that's not what it's about. Salvation is about Jesus and Jesus alone. About what he has done. It's about relationship with him. So the tension as it builds, as it's there, what I would lovingly challenge you with, or what I would lovingly say, I or anyone else on earth does not possess the power or the authority to say for certain, for certain, that anyone whether is or isn't a true believer. Nobody possesses that power. Not what, even the people that I am closest to, I can't speak with absolute certainty that they are. Well, because I don't know the heart. I don't see the motives. I'm, I'm unaware of that. But what we can do is we can look for evidences 
that would point to whether one belongs to Jesus or not. Jesus talks about this, that you will know them by their what? Fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. So a tree of Jesus has to produce what? Jesus-type fruit. It has to. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering. Think of those things. It has to produce that. Why? Because he's in us giving us the life source that we need to be able to produce, to be able to, to grow, to be able to be. And so as a result of being plugged into the vine, that tree's going to produce fruit. And so if there's no fruit being produced, there's a, there's a big, big issue, Right? I mean, think, we're in, we're in, uh, we're in fruit, a fruit place. We're in a fruity place. Huh? I mean, there's peaches everywhere, right? There's peach trees everywhere around here. Just drive up Highway 11, head toward Chesney. There's peach trees everywhere. What do they do to that tree that doesn't produce? They get rid of it. Why? Because they want a tree that's going to produce. Why? Because a peach tree is supposed to produce what? Peaches. Same thing for a believer. We are to produce in our life the fruit of Christ. That's what we're to do. That's what's to happen in our life. There will be evidences that we belong to him. And my fear is that we go and we hang out, we hang out in, the, in the pasture where the trees are, but we've never been planted. That we're just there doing the same thing that the other trees of Jesus are doing, but there's never been life-giving fruit vibrance in you whereby God produces fruit in you, where you've crossed from death to life. And so with that, two quick thoughts. One is this, is that we all struggle with sin. So hear me, church. I'm not, I'm not saying just because you're in a battle right now and, and you've given in or you've struggled or uh, this world is kicking you in the teeth. I'm not saying because of that that you're not a follower of Jesus. That's by no means what I'm saying. Because we all struggle with sin. We all do. Sin can entangle us so easily if we take our eyes off of Jesus, if we've stopped pursuing him and loving him like he's called us to. But one of the true practices of a believer is that of repentance. So when we do stumble into sin, when we do fall into sin, when it do, does entangle us or ensnares us, when we're called on it by the Holy Spirit or another believer, what do we do? We repent. It's called conviction. Church, conviction is a good gift from God. That's what conviction is. It's evidence that, that the Holy Spirit is alive in you, working in you, doing something in you. So when you sin, you can't stay in that sin long. Why? Because if you belong to Jesus, if you belong to the Lord, the Holy Spirit's going to wreck you. He's not going to let you just flounder out there in your sin and enjoy it. There, there's no joy in the life of a believer who's in sin. Maybe for a little season, but all I know is that I've got a daddy, and what daddy does is he loves me enough to whoop me when I need a whooping. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He says, Scott, what the heck are you doing? That's just how he talks to me. What the heck are you doing? Boy, I, I raised you better than that. I've called you to something greater than that. I've got, what are you, that, that won't bring you joy. That, that won't fulfill you. That won't complete you. That won't get you ahead. That won't bring life to you. What, quit, quit meddling and playing in the muck, man. Come on. And so whenever that happens in my life and he presses upon my heart that sweet gift of conviction, what do I do? I run to the Father. Because I know my daddy is a loving, gracious daddy with arms wide open that says, come on back, son. Let's make this right and let's get going again. 
Let's make this right and let's get going. So I, so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know maybe if, if that's a thing in your life. Because hear me, if you're dabbling and playing and meddling in sin or entangled in sin over a long period of time, you won't produce fruit. Because it's, it, the world is anti-God. And as, as we dabble and as we play and we allow that to take hold of us, it, it drowns out us producing fruit like we need to produce fruit. So we repent, run to God, and we make right whatever we need to. All I'll say is this, is at the end of the day, there has to be a deep desire for Jesus, for obedience. And if that's not there, you need to check your heart. And so Jesus, he didn't lose any of his disciples. He didn't lose Judas. Or he did not fail him by not keeping him, as the scripture talks about. The issue was that he was never there to begin with. Jesus was the one hanging out in the, tr- in the field of trees, not being the tree that he, he was supposed to be. And that's foreseen and ordained, or foreordained in the Scriptures. You can see that throughout the Scriptures. And that's what even Jesus says in his prayer. He accept the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And so I think what breaks my heart the most and what's scary is that Judas saw all these miraculous things that Jesus did. He even knew about and walked among like one that belonged, but he just wasn't. And church, what keeps me up at night, what scares me to death is how many in this place are the same way. How how many watching online are the same way. I mean, they they can speak Christianese, meaning they know the verbiage, bless you, brother or sister. Bless your little heart. May God be glorified. Know when to raise their hand during a song. Can even say a nice little sweet, cute little prayer, but they have no heartbeat for Jesus. They have no longing and desire of obedience to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And and what scares me is how many Judases come through the church week in and week out knowing a lot about Jesus, but not knowing him personally and him giving them a life vibrancy and transformation and resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus says this, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the uh, world has hated them because they're not of, of, of the world, just as I am not of the world. So in his prayer, Jesus is reminding them, boys, they're going to hate you because you're not of the world, you're anti-world. So church, remember, the world's going to hate us. They're going to hate our opinions. They're going to hate our views. They're going to hate our stances. They're going to think it's insensitive. They're going to think it's, it's bigotry. They're going to think it's ridiculousness. You, you can't, I can't believe that you would stand for that or you would believe that or you would think that way. I can't believe it. But, but Jesus tells them here, and it's something that we can look at and we can, we can gain understanding greater in today, isn't it not? That, that when we stand for truth, the world's going to hate the truth. They don't like the truth. Why? Because dark hates the light. And so Jesus is praying that they will have joy no matter what the world says about them, no matter what the world does to them, no matter what the world tweets, or no matter what the world tags them in, or no no matter what the world uh, doesn't include them in. And he is praying for them to stand strong. And look at what he says after that. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And I don't know about you, but for me sometimes I'm like, Jesus, are you sure about that prayer? Because I sure would like to be gone. But he says, no, no, I'm going to leave you there because I can accomplish something through you being light in the dark. I I, I can do a work through you. He he doesn't ask for his disciples to be taken out of the world, but for for God to keep them from the evil one. So what I want to say here, church, is this, is that safety does not mean the absence of hard things. We need to prepare ourselves for that. You hear me? 
Because as the world gets darker and darker and darker, what does the dark like to do to the light? Get rid of it. And life is going to get difficult and hard. And, and we'll see, talking about this eternal security, we're, we're going to see who's saved one day. We'll know greater by their fruit. But safety does not mean the absence of hard things. Jesus does not ask the Father to keep the disciples from suffering and from troubles in life. And what do we know in the book of Acts? That that happens. I mean, Peter's out just doing his thing, preaching the gospel. What happens? He gets arrested and beaten, flogged and put in prison. I mean, all these things happen. Paul takes the name of Jesus and his life just goes sweet and great, doesn't it? Absolutely not. So all this prosperity gospel junk, I mean, how does it work for the men and women of Scripture? It's an epic fail, is it not? So, so Jesus doesn't save you to sit you in comfort and lavish all of this nonsense of no troubles and no hardships. It's the quite opposite if you look at the scriptures. Those men and women who take the name of Jesus, it's the opposite. It's, not, it's difficulties, it's struggles, it's hardships, it's things coming against them in this world. Why? Because they are opposed to everything the world stands for. And so Jesus just asks that God would keep the disciples, to guard them, keep them safe from Satan. He asks for protection from the wicked forces. And so we need to understand as followers of Jesus, we have a real enemy. We have an enemy that can't stand Jesus, therefore can't stand us. And he goes on, he says this, he says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So Jesus is just pointing back to the fact that his disciples, as well as the disciples that are destined for another place, eternity with him, right? And we never forget that. And so what I would challenge you this morning is just be careful not to love this place too much. Not to love the things of this place too much. And when I'm talking about place, I'm talking about world. I'm talking about comforts of this world. Things that this world offers us and promises us. Be careful not to fall too much in love with. Don't let that taste be so palatable upon your mouth that you, you, you long for and run after. Instead, he says this, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is asking God the Father to set his disciples apart in the truth that only comes from his word. And set them apart. Help them grow and mature in your word. So if you've ever wondered if something is right, good, and truthful, Right here, look at what God's Word says. Every time, look at what God's Word says. See, because church, we're constantly bombarded with stuff that pulls us away from that, are we not? I mean, we're constantly being bombarded with stuff from this world that challenges truth and entices the fallenness of us. Entices the, the, the flesh that we battle every single day, are we not? I mean, like this week, I was sitting on the couch with my boy, my oldest. I'm sitting on the couch with him, and as we're sitting there watching TV, commercial comes on, so what do I do? I get up and I go over to the kitchen, which the kitchen is right next to the living room, open concept. I can see the TV screen, and I'm over here doing something, getting me a drink, and here comes this commercial. And this commercial comes on, and it's just a black screen. It's a black screen, and as this black screen kind of comes on, what do you see? You see two skeletons. And they're kind of moving and doing one on this side of the screen, one on this side of the screen, and they're kind of moving. And then what do they do? They come to one another and they embrace with a hug. And then they back up and then they come back in for a kiss, like this intimate romantic kiss. And then what happens? They exit out to the ends of the screen and they poke their head around. And what is it? It's two women. And I've got an eight-year-old that sat there and got to see all of that. And, and, and what the, 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 the kick line was this. Love knows no gender. 
To which I would say yes and amen, depending upon how you define love. Which the way this commercial defines love is very anti-gospel type love. And so I just want to, I just, I want to be very gracious and I want to be very easy here. As, as he, I'm not going to. The gospel is the gospel. If you don't like it, then it's between you and the Lord. But the scriptures are clear about that type of lifestyle. So we as a church, we as believers stand on truth. And what does truth say? Truth says that that type of love is between a man and a woman. Period. And, and I'm going to extend grace and I'm going to extend mercy. But you need to know something. In the eyes of God, that's wrong. So me being a follower of Jesus, that lifestyle is wrong, is sinful, is anti-God, anti-gospel. But this is what you're going to get from me. And, and you can check my track record. I mean, I'm going to love you through that. It doesn't scare me off. I'm not going to use slurs. I'm not going to joke about it. You can come over to my house anytime you want for dinner. You are more than welcome to come to this church and hear the gospel proclaimed week in and week out. And we're going to love you and we're going to challenge you with truth is what we're going to do. All the while saying that that lifestyle, that decision that you've made is, is anti-gospel and anti-what God has said is right and fitting for the way that he's created us to be. And the thing is this, it doesn't matter what your feelings are. The scripture is plain and it teaches us, does it not, that the heart is deceitful, that it's wicked. Who can know it? That's what the scriptures teach. So why am I going to default to the oh in that sweet poor thing? Whenever the Bible teaches me that I can't trust my heart, I can't trust my feelings. And what Jesus is praying for for his disciples here is truth, that they would know the truth, that they would be immersed in the truth, that they would be set aside while for spreading the truth. Now, church, I, I, don't, I just want to feel like I just need to keep talking about this for a second. Because what I believe would be great is not to go to one of those rallies or not to go to one of those parades and stand on the sidewalk with a megaphone telling them how much God hates them because I don't believe that's gospel. I don't believe that that's honoring of God. What, what I think would be better is that if we would go to a rally or to parade that way and we would take some cold waters and we would offer them drinks and we would offer an opportunity to talk and, and to hear them and to earn favor with them Why? so that we can speak into their life, so that we can love them like Jesus loves them. Because, church, the thing we've got to remember is that there's a lost and there's a saved and the way that we treat the lost matters. And you'll never win the lost throwing stones at them. You'll never win the lost telling them how much God hates them. But you'll win the lost by loving, standing on truth, loving and caring for and entering into dialogue whereby we can get to the point where we share the gospel. That's what we've got to be about. That's what we've got to be about. And so Jesus prays for his disciples, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So back to the story that I just told you, what happened? Man, I had a great opportunity to share with my boy at eight years old. And it's crazy to think we have to have this discussion at eight years old. Man, but there's more that's coming, and I know that. And I'm doing everything that I can to do what? To sanctify him in the truth. To set him apart in God's word and truth. And there's always going to be a place that we can run back to, and we can check, and we can know. We can run back. If the creator of the world has said it, is that not good enough? 
This church is the filter and the standard that we run. Everything through is the Word of God. And so I had a great opportunity this week to do that with my boy. And so Jesus prays for his disciples that they be set apart. He goes on in verse 18 as, as we wind down and the band comes back up. He says, you sent me into the world so that I have sent them into the world. And when I read that, what I think about is this is purpose. Is that for you this morning as a follower and a believer of Jesus, what that says is that you've got purpose. Because if you didn't have purpose and God was finished with you, what would happen is once you got saved, he would just call you home. He would take you with him, but he didn't pray for that. And that's not what happens. And so what we see here is, is Jesus giving purpose to his disciples. And he prays that as he sends them out into the world. Man, you have got purpose. Never forget that. Never forget where you work, where you shop, where you go, where you play, where you vacation. All of that is for a perfect purpose and a specific reason. And in verse 19, he says this. He says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What we know is that Jesus was set apart fully to the will of God. And he did that in order that believers might be set apart to God by the truth that he brought. And he wanted his disciples to walk and live out that truth so that the world may know the hope that is found only in Jesus. Not in feelings, not in what you think you like, not in, not in stuff that brings death, but in things that brings life, and that's Jesus. So this morning we see Jesus praying for his disciples and church, when we look deeper into what Jesus was praying for his disciples, we can learn how to better pray for fellow believers. I mean, we can understand at greater depth Jesus' love for us, Jesus' desire for us to grow and to be light in a dark world. And so church, we need to be constant in the ear of God for protection from the devil and for us as believers to be unified, to be one as the Father is one. And so to close this morning, I just want to ask you this question. Where's Satan trying to attack you? Because all I know is this, is that if you love Jesus and you're pursuing him and you're following him, then there's a war that is raging. If you're just sitting there being a nominal Christian, yeah, I've got saved. I'm just going to do my thing and sit on the seat. Do very little for the name and glory and honor of God, which I would question, are you really saved? Anyways, but if you're following Jesus, man, and Satan's coming after you, attacking you, if there's a sin that seems to ensnare you, and where, where is he trying to get you? Where is he trying to discourage or to tempt or to trick you into believing something that isn't true? And so we have the word of God to go back to. We have truth to rely on. And so may we pray for God to keep us in his word and keep us victorious over Satan and his poise so that we don't fall into sin. And so maybe for you this morning, it's a place where or for the final or for the first time ever, God has revealed to you your great need for him and salvation. Maybe you're watching online and that's what's taken place as the proclamation of his word has went out. As we've looked at what he has said and what he's expected. And if that's the case, man, I would encourage you this morning, man, man put your faith and trust in Jesus. Believe and walk in glad obedience. And, and I'll be up here up front. I would love to talk to you more about what that means and what that looks like to have a relationship with Jesus as your Savior. It's more than just knowing a bunch of stuff about Jesus, but knowing him personally. And if that's you, by all means, man, you respond in a way that brings honor and glory to God. You respond in obedience and faith. But may we never forget that Jesus' desire for us to know him personally and to be set apart by his truth. May we live that way in this world this week to show the world to whom we belong. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we love you. We need you. God, I pray you speak to the hearts of the people in this room. 
God, I pray you speak to the hearts of those that are watching online. Father, I just pray, God, that if there be one that doesn't know you personally as Lord and Savior, Father, that you would rescue and redeem. That it would be more about just not going to hell. And it would be more about knowing you as Father, as Savior, as Lord. So Jesus, work in this place, I beg of you. And God, for those of us in this room that may be struggling with sin right now, that have been beat up, been kicked, God, I pray for encouragement whether that be through conviction, whether that be through uh, the word that you've proclaimed this morning. Father, I just pray, God, that as we fellowship back together, as we uh, live out community together, Father God, that we would encourage and pray for and love one another like you've called us to. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you. God, move in this moment for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray. Amen. 